from Hillary Clinton to Saturday Night Live and the unbreakable relationship between American politics and popular culture. That's coming up on this week's episode of Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Jerling Biro. Thank you so much for listening. On this episode, I interview one of the most sought-after writers, producers in television. Alison Silverman is currently a writer on Tina Fey's smash hit series, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Alison Silverman knows all about the intersection of pop culture and politics from her time on The Daily Show and as executive producer of The Colbert Report. But first... Last week, Hillary Clinton announced that she's running for president. And just hours before, Saturday Night Live's Kate McKinnon had blown viewers away with her new Clinton impression. People are already comparing it to SNL's most iconic political impressions of the past, such as Will Ferrell's George W. Bush, and that one that maybe became the biggest phenomenon of all, Tina Fey's Sarah Palin in 2008. The relationship between American politics and pop culture is undeniably important and powerful, and it goes both ways. Politicians are not only being impersonated, they understand that they have to dive in themselves. Way back when, Nixon invited Elvis to the White House. And today, President Obama uses BuzzFeed or does a really cool slow jam with Jimmy Fallon when he needs to get his message out. I really wanted to talk to someone who follows and writes about the relationship between politics and pop culture and thrilled to speak to writer Ian Crouch of The New Yorker Online. But first, let's listen to Kate McKinnon on Saturday Night Live as Hillary Clinton the day before she announced she was running for president. Okay, tomorrow's the big day, Mrs. Clinton. You're finally going to announce that you're running for president. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I have it in me. I'm scared. I'm kidding. Let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Hillary, you put the hill in hilarious. (laughs) Now, since we're announcing your candidacy via social media, we thought it would be fun if you actually filmed the video yourself on your own phone. That way it seems more personal and intimate. Uh, 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 Personal and intimate, yes. I better take off this jacket then. (laughs) That's much better. Now, want to do some vocal warm-ups and then we'll get started? Okay, I'd love to. Uh, um, Hillary's a granny with a twinkle in her eye. (laughs) Hillary's a granny and she makes an apple pie. First female president... First female president, me, 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 me. Very welcome, Ian. Thank you. It's a big pleasure to be here. What did you think? Her impersonation is an unbelievable character. I thought even after just three times appearing on air that it's already one of the better um, impersonations of a politician that Saturday Night Live has ever had. I thought that there was something about it that was equally a great impersonation of the actual Hillary Clinton and then an incredible creation in its own right. It started as a really effective technical impersonation and then went into this other really kind of funny and almost alarming area at the same time. (laughs) Could you describe that alarming area? Well, I think it's something about um, the way that Kate McKinnon shapes her face and especially the, the look that she has in her eyes. It's almost a combination of extreme intelligence and almost like a flicker of like uh, thinly veiled insanity that all adds up into a caricature that also becomes a comedic 
um, character in its own right. But at the same time, there seems to be a lot of respect for Hillary Clinton, that she's been through a lot. There's something, there's a lot of strength in this impersonation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, in some ways, reminds me of, it shares some things in common with the impersonation that Amy Poehler did of Hillary Clinton when she was running for president in 2008, in that it establishes her as the smartest and the most qualified of the presidential candidates who's almost exasperated that she has to um, engage in the election with other less qualified candidates. It's this idea that she needs to, that it's, it's almost insulting that the lack of respect that she's afforded. Hillary, I've heard that she really liked um, Amy Poehler's, the one you were mentioning. Do, do, what do you think she's going to think of this one? Well, I'm not sure she's going to be quite as fond of it as the Amy Poehler one. I think the Amy Poehler one was more of a straight impersonation that kind of established her as the credible alternative to some of the other candidates who were being impersonated on the show, especially um, the impersonation of Sarah Palin that Tina Fey did. Mm -hmm. I think with the Kate McKinnon one, it's a little more cutting and has a kind of a sharper edge to it that may that she may not find quite as appealing, although perhaps she'll find a way to laugh it off as she has other things in the past. I think the thing about Hillary Clinton that gets kind of underestimated here in the United States is that she does have a effective public sense of humor and has been able to use that in the past. And and, and speaking of that, um, do these impersonations that SNL has been doing for years and years and years from everyone from Gerald Ford and on, do they have a real impact on the elections, do you think? Well, I'm not sure if anyone has actually done any statistical polling on the matter, but when you think of, you mentioned Gerald Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, Which was Chevy Chase. The impersonation Chase. that SNL used to do of Gerald Ford kind of established him as a bumbling, foolish character. And it was completely at odds with his, his, his actual public persona. And yet, I think that if you were to ask people to look back on the character of, of Ford, they would think as much of the SNL impersonation as they would of his actual presidency. And then during the 2000 election, when it was um, Al Gore and um, George W. Bush, there was a, a real eff- effective um, impersonation of each candidate and the impersonation of Al Gore made him seem haughty and unapproachable and stiff and the one of George W. Bush made him seem foolish and yet at the same time almost more approachable and that was Will Ferrell right yeah that was Will Ferrell actually and then over George W. Bush's presidency Will Ferrell continued to sharpen the critique, and in the end, it became a pretty devastating impersonation in its own right. But I think in the beginning, it was the Al Gore impersonation that was more sort of damaging to Al Gore's campaign. And then talking about fiction, um, the LA Times actually had an article about how different the TV landscape is now compared to when Hillary ran last time in 2008. Um, At that point, we had like President Palmer from 24 and Josea Bartlett of the West Wing had been had been sort of what we were watching on TV. And now there's all these powerful women mentioned in the same breath as Hillary. There's Leslie Nopes, Parks and Recreation, some Selena Myers from Veep Claire from House of Cards, and even Alicia Florick of The Good Wife with marital scandals included. Um, is there a sort of a Hillary effect in fiction as well? That's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought too much about it, but that makes sense that there's this, there is an age of, of strong and powerful 
women who are being shown in positions of, of power. And it's, perhaps it's one of those, uh, is it the chicken or the egg situations? Is it a changing culture that is, that is, that, that Hillary has been able to thrive in? Or is it something that she had an effect in establishing over the years? And I think it's probably more of the latter. I mean, Hillary Clinton, when she was the first lady in the first term of her husband's presidency was often made fun of or questioned for having such a um, important influence in the policies of the country. And I think that that kind of coverage would no longer um, accompany a active first lady or indeed a woman running for president in her own right. But then the, on the other end of this that we're talking about, you have uh, politicians that are not also inclined of just being impersonated. They also be, want to be part of pop culture. How has President Obama reached out? Yeah, I think that Obama is the first president. I mean, if you look back at Bill Clinton, for example, he appeared on the Arsenio Hall show and played the saxophone and went on Johnny Carson after he had given an ineffective speech in 1988. So he was kind of on the foreground of embracing pop culture. But with President Obama, I think you have someone who appears to be especially credible in that kind of area. He seems at ease. He seems to have a very good sense of humor in his own right. And so, for example, when he appeared on uh, the web series Between Two Ferns with the comedian Zach Galifianakis to promote the Affordable Care Act, he seemed to be in on the joke and, and, and seemed to really be appreciating what you can imagine some politicians would view as being a uh, kind of a peripheral or strange show. I mean, if, if you can imagine somebody of an older generation of politicians appearing on that show, they would be combative or confused or just right. completely overwhelmed <laughs> by what a strange personality that Zach Galifianakis has. Right. Um, why is it important for politicians to care about popular culture? Well, I mean, I, I think that it's an effective way to communicate their policy goals. I mean, every year in March, President Obama has filled out a college basketball tournament bracket on television. And usually he takes some time when he's filling that out. That's a huge uh, phenomenon where everyone is watching all these games and filling out their own tournament uh, brackets. And he sort of uses that as a way to talk a little bit about politics, but then also to suggest that he's sort of plugged into the, the, the sort of general cultural interests of the country as a whole. And I think he's been, I think he's especially used both comedy and sports as two avenues to be able to be approachable. And then I guess with the YouTube channel and the interview with, with David, like, that they're sort of using all sort of new types of inter BuzzFeed and things like that just to get the word out. Yeah, the interview he gave with David Simon also just made sense because even when he was running for president, he had been uh, a uh, an open and very excited supporter of The Wire. He was he was essentially one of the most prominent fans of the show, and so when he speaks to David Simon, he talks about reforming the criminal justice system and about prison reform and about the country's drug laws, and yet at the same time it doesn't seem like it's a like an opportunistic pop culture moment because he's a fan of the show and these are issues that the show actually cared about. Do you have any idea how many people actually, you know, watch that? What's the reach of something like that? 
I'm not sure. I would suspect that more people probably would see his interview with a news outlet like BuzzFeed, where he took a selfie in the Oval Office <laughs> than when he would speak to David Simon about reforming the criminal justice system. <laughs> Unfortunately, but that's how it goes. Are conservatives more weary of pop culture? I get that feeling here, but I could be wrong. Well, I think that conservatives have been... Um, outspoken in criticizing President Obama for what appears to be him embracing a kind of pop culture celebrity status. But it's hard to say if that's just envy in the sense that they don't feel like they're getting the same coverage or opportunity in, in pop culture that maybe a progressive politician whose politics is probably more in line with some of the folks in the entertainment industry are able to access. You know, I mean, there isn't still isn't really an equivalent conservative kind of daily show or what the Colbert Report used to be. There isn't like a um, an easy or natural fit, I don't think, for certain conservative politics and and general pop culture. But I think also that if they were able to, to find a way to promote themselves through pop culture, they would be eager, you know, to try. I don't think this is an ethical stand as much as it is just a matter of um, of the situation. Is it, is it, I have this feeling that people are always making fun of, Obama has a cool um, music taste on his iPod and then the conservatives have like some old country song. I mean, there's like always this, it's, they're just not as cool. Yeah, no, I think that that's, Exactly right. Um, Ted Cruz, who's running for president for the Republican Party, was asked about his taste in music on one of uh, the major network um, morning shows. And for uh, the September 11th attacks, he had stopped listening to rock and roll because he didn't think that they had responded in a kind of a patriotic way. And he had switched to listening only to country music. And that's the kind of thing that kind of shows him to be aiming for a very specific and essentially fairly narrow target audience. This Saturday, something really big is happening. It's the White House Correspondents' Dinner, also known as the Nerd Prom. It's a, a party where political leaders, the journalists that cover them, and, and what seems to be a growing array of Hollywood stars, um, it's generally hosted by, or always, I guess, hosted by comedians. I get Jay Leno, Colbert, and this year is an, another SNLer. It's Cecily Strong. What makes this night interesting? Well, I think that there have been a few instances in the past in which the comedian who they have to host is able to sort of pull off a very devastating roast of the sitting president. I'm thinking of in 1996 when the radio host Don Imus roasted President Bill Clinton or in 2006 when Stephen Colbert issued a devastating kind of a takedown on the administration of George W. Bush. And I think that in, in more recent years, there's been an obvious toning down of the comedian's sort of take on the president and an emphasis on the president's own sense of humor. And so in some ways, the remarks that the president gives are in some ways more interesting and funnier than the more careful remarks than the hired stand-up comedians. So what you mean is they, they've become afraid of the comedians, that, that, that Colbert was too harsh and that they've asked them to tone it down. Is that what you think? It seems that way, or that they're choosing comedians that they feel more confident share a general ideological outlook with the administration. And it's... I mean, President Obama has been 
consistently funny in all of his appearances over the years. And that owes, I think, in large part to the writers who prepare his remarks, but then also in terms of his own performance. He's just very much at ease in that kind of a setting. Do you remember anything particular he did that was funny or that was particularly talked about after? I'm trying to think of the last few years. I remember the one interesting thing was that a few years ago, he performed at the White House Correspondents' Dinner amidst the the time that the U.S. Uh, military was closing in and about to execute its its assassination of Osama bin Laden, and he was able to essentially step away from what was this incredibly important international political moment and give a lighthearted and very funny performance and then return to this other thing. And it, it just kind of emphasizes the strange um, multitasking, I think, that a president these days has to do. But this night sort of encompasses the the presidency's relationship with pop culture and comedy and allows everyone to roast each other, sort of, right? I mean, there's something about that there's no holds, but you can do whatever you want on this night. Yeah, no, I, I think that sounds right. And I think that um, that Obama in the past has used it to make a special fun of his political opponents. He referred to one year uh, the Speaker of the House, John Boehner, and emphasized how tan he was. He was sort of permanently tan, and this, was, this is kind of an ongoing joke in Washington. And a few years ago, he insulted, he insulted Donald Trump and kind of infuriated Donald Trump, who was sitting in the audience and was unable to respond. Yeah, I remember Donald Trump got really pissed. <laughs> he could not take a joke. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's used to having the microphone or being in charge of whatever scenario he's in charge, you know, he's usually in charge of. So, so the idea that he just had to sit there was especially angering, I think, and very funny, of course. I suspect that this year we'll hear a lot of jokes about the new presidential candidates for 2016. I think this will kind of segue into talking a lot more about Hillary Clinton and then the two handfuls of Republican hopefuls as well. And just uh, rounding off where we started with an SNL, or how do you think Cecily Strong will do, who at one point had the news desk on SNL? Yeah, I think it's it, it's an exciting choice. I mean, when I heard the announcement, I, I instantly thought that it would be even funnier if it had been Kate McKinnon just because of, of her impersonation. But I think she'll do a great job. And I think that um, Seth Meyers, who has performed in the past and was once the head writer on SNL, will probably have some advice. And I think that it, it, it should be very funny. I can't wait to see it. And this was so much fun and really interesting. Thank you very much for talking to me. Oh, I really appreciate it. It was a whole lot of fun. One of the best representations of politics and popular culture is the Colbert Report. And my next guest, Alison Silverman, was the show's first executive producer and an integral part of developing the character. When she moved on, Colbert even dedicated the popular segment The Word to Alison. But move on, she did, and she's worked on some of the best shows on TV. Alison Silverman has not shied away from projects in many different formats with smart, edgy humor and made some really bold choices. Notably now with Netflix Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, the outrageously funny show but with a pretty heavy premise of an abducted woman freed from a sect and making her way in New York City. 
A miracle today in Dernsville, Indiana. Four women rescued from an underground apocalypse cult. You got a secret. I am one of the Indiana Mole women. From the news. I spent 15 years in that bunker eating beans out of a Florida Marlins cap. I just want to be a normal person. I'm having candy for dinner. You yell in your sleep. You bite my nails. And we still don't know why you're afraid of Velcro. Ah! Look out, New York. Nothing can stop us now. Allison Silverman, welcome. So, you're an Emmy-nominated writer-producer. You've written for Conan, The Office, The Daily Show. You pretty much invented the Colbert Report. You were one of the first writers on Portlandia, and now Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I would say, basically, you're a national treasure, and good television is lost without you. So I just want to know that you're staying safe. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I have to say, like, that was the sweetest introduction, but I do have to correct you. I'm not only Emmy-nominated, I have won three Emmys. Uh, all the rest of it, national treasure and stuff, I'm not so sure, but there were some voters who uh, who gave me a, a couple Emmys there. That's great, and you well-deserved. Um, can you describe your own sense of humor? Uh, I, I think that, that's a hard question, but uh, a good one. I, I, I think that um, I'm just a hybrid of my parents. So my father is uh, a scientist and he has a very sort of absurd, goofy sense of humor. And uh, my mother, I think, is very, very, uh, she doesn't think she has a sense of humor at all. Um, but uh, she has a real sort of incisive political bent to her. Um, so, uh, I, I think when I'm at my best, I, I sort of can write some stuff that's both absurd and has some sort of point to it, um, which was the kind of thing that we got to do on Colbert Report a lot. And can you write for any genre? Oh, I definitely don't think so. <laughs> there are many, many... What would be the most difficult? Well, for instance, um, uh, I would say that I, I'm often... A big struggle for me is to write longer things. Um, for many, many years, I was writing on late night shows for The Daily Show and Colbert and Late Night with Conan O'Brien, and even Portlandia, and those are all very short formats, and I got confident in short formats. But to approach something long, you know, I, I don't know if I can do it or not. Frankly, I, I have not had the, the patience or confidence to really work with something for a long period of time. So that's a real challenge for me that I'm working on. I'm so impressed with people who, you know, I have a friend who's been working on this amazing piece of prose for almost a decade, and I, I have such respect for it. I, I don't think I have that kind of discipline yet, but I'd like to. The three late night um, guys you were talking about, Conan, John Stewart, and Colbert, how would you describe their writers' rooms differently? Well, the first I would say is that there was a marked difference in appearance of the writers' rooms. My first uh, writers' room in, in that bunch was uh, John Stewart's show, and uh, that had a certain feel, and people were sort of, well, I'll just say this. Sometimes the writers' rooms seem to reflect the hosts themselves. So with The Daily Show, most of the writers were not that tall. Um, they were very kind of intellectual-looking. And then once I went to Conan, honest to God, there were... a bunch of really tall Irish guys, <laughs> um, and I, I just tend to think it kind of goes that way. In terms of tone, um, at, uh, at Conan, I feel like there was a lot of, something that I love, uh, a lot of real goofiness. You would sit around the writer's room and, and really uh, take your time and kind of uh, shoot the shit to come up with really silly stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, at The Daily Show and at Colbert, to an extent, there was you were looking immediately at the news stories of the day and, and trying to figure out what your take on it was. And, and, and because of that, I think it was sort of 
a more uh, directly goal-oriented writer's room, whereas at Conan, like, part of the part of the feel was, like, let's see if we can just find something magical in, you know, whatever pops up, as opposed to we've got to take a certain situation and, 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 and find the satirical take on it. Talk about a little bit about the development of the character of Colbert, which you actually were a great part of. Did you plan that, let's see if we can get away with this and that? You know, uh, we definitely did. So so Stephen had been on The the Daily Show for a number of years and, and had sort of developed a bit of a persona, but it was kind of slippery depending on what kind of story we were trying to sort of skewer. You know, the character could change from very right-wing to more left-wing, or it, it, he sort of served the purpose of the story. But then once the Colbert Report started getting underway, we needed to sort of nail down some things. And, you know, the first few weeks and uh, months of development, there was a lot of fun um, brainstorming on just sort of finding some specifics about him, Um, uh, you know, things about his life and and just sort of really trying to figure out what was around this character. And then as time went on, you know, we didn't have the time to sort of have those specific brainstorming sessions, but you would learn more things about him as stories came about. I think the character became... um, a little uh, more friendly as the uh, as the years went on. We always thought of him as being sort of well intentioned, but uh, poorly informed and very stupid. So he was um, meaner in the beginning, is what you're saying? Or harsher? You know, I, I yeah, and I think that is somewhat about the performance too, and how the audience. Um, understood their relationship with Stephen. I think as audiences uh, and Stephen got to know each other more, the audiences sort of understood the games that we were playing, and there became sort of a rapport where uh, Stephen could have a sort of a glint in his eye, and he knew the audience knew that he was pulling them in, and they trusted him, and it became kind of a friendlier take to me. Um, I think at first he's a little bit more hard-line and not as, um, his performance is, not as friendly. Um, and uh, I think that, that actually happens on a, in a lot of shows as, as you progress and, and people get more comfortable. Um, you, I read in an interview that you said that it was tough on Colbert, that after four years you, you almost felt burnt out by the hours and the amount of work. Is that true? Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, it was a, a, a very uh, time-consuming and uh, mental mentally exhausting uh, show for sure. More than other shows you've been on? Uh, well, you know, it, I would I would start by saying it's a little hard for me to say because my position on um, Colbert was different. I was a writer, but I was also executive producer, whereas in a lot of other shows I was a writer um, only. But um, yeah, it's a very, that was a very tricky show. It was very, very written and you had to approach things in this kind of backwards way where you were getting a point across by saying the opposite of what you meant. And and that, you know, is some, that's some verbal gymnastics and mental gymnastics that can get very tiring. Before we go, tonight is our last show with my executive producer, Allison Silverman. And her departure brings us to tonight's word. Allison! Now, folks... My feelings are complicated here. I'm both very sad and very furious that she's leaving. And, frankly, I don't want to have a meltdown on camera. 
So, <laughs> to feel better about it, I am choosing to have false memories that will make me glad she's leaving. For instance, I just remembered that Allison has an island where she hunts old people for sport. <laughs> So you're from Florida, you went to Yale, you settled in Brooklyn, but in between you learned a few things about Portland. Tell me about the writer's room at Portlandia, where you actually were one of the four that started there, right? I was, yeah. Uh, that was such a small writer's room. Um, it was kind of unlike anything I've, I've done before or since. Um, we were really just... I don't even know how to explain it. it. It was really just trying to find things and and discussing things that hit us about the communities we were seeing and, and the lives that, uh, or the, the lifestyles we were a part of. I'd say that was a, an interesting thing for me. For, for years I'd worked on Colbert and was kind of trying to find the satirical bent on lifestyles that I, I wasn't so much a part of. Um, and then to do Portlandia and, and sort of, take down my own, because I definitely fall into that category, take down my own lifestyle was, was really, I really enjoyed that. And, and it was a different process. Um, it was some intense self-examination. So all your ideas on there, all the writer's ideas are basically from your own life. You're just picking things you're seeing in your communities where you lived? Yes, I would say so, for sure. And um, now you are on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is really one of the most surprising and original shows I've seen in a long time with the jokes are just coming oh, every you. minute. And, and then there's this commentary on just media's exploitation of victims and feminism and racism. It's super dark and super light at the same time, but sort of essentially about a rape <laughs> victim. So I want to know, when you got into that writer's room with Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, how did they present to you this storyline? Well, you know, I, uh, the, the storyline existed before I, I joined up. Uh, they developed that story and, and wrote a pilot script. And I got on board after reading the pilot script and, and being very impressed that I thought it had a, a very strong point of view, um, which is something that's important to me as a writer and viewer. Um, and, uh, and that it was tackling something that I thought was really bold. And that's something that I feel like uh, I take away from Colbert and, and Portlandia to extend to that. I, I think sometimes um, people in the TV industry underestimate how much TV, TV viewers enjoy sort of a bold choice. So uh, I just, I thought it would have an audience and I thought I'd be really interested in working on it. Uh, there, it, it was definitely... A, a tightrope walk trying to figure out how to present this woman's past and, and how it was affecting her. And, and, uh, I thought, you know, Tina and Robert were really the arbiters of, of course, of what goes in and what goes out. I thought they did a great job. How openly do you talk, um, amongst yourselves in the writer's room about like this, we want this to be about feminism or we want this, how, how much do you talk about the commentary that you're doing before you go and sit and write your part? You know, I think a lot of it actually uh, comes a bit uh, after the fact. Not that there are definitely um, definitely moments where we're discussing themes very very openly and very sort of in the abstract. Um, and there are other times where uh, I, I think more commonly we come up with a, a a story or a bit of a story that we enjoy, and then we discover parts of it that feel like they're 
you know, that they have a message that we're interested in, in, in communicating. So I was going to ask you about writing for Netflix. How was that different? Well, you know, so we weren't we weren't writing for Netflix. At least I didn't know you we were writing for Netflix. The the show was um, originally going to be on NBC, uh, so we were writing it for the NBC audience, which is um, probably significantly broader and um, more quote unquote mainstream than the Netflix audience. Uh, so we thought it would be you know the same place you know, where 30 Rock had been and stuff. And then after the fact, after, you know, the majority of production was done, we discovered that we were going to get to be on Netflix. So this coming season, which we're going to start writing soon, I'll, I'll get the answer for you. I'll, I'll figure out what it's like writing for Netflix instead. Okay. <laughs> I was just wondering whether, whether there's a difference if you knew that, that people will binge it in one day or if you as a writer think differently was sort of what I was getting to. Well, yeah, we'll see this this year. I mean, one of the things that's going to be interesting, uh, I think, um, as a writer, is just one thing would be like the the length that you can uh, make a show um, and how things get edited. Um, because on network television, you'll see comedies. There's very little what we call air in it. There's you know the the jokes have to play at a, in a certain speed to get everything done, and there's often, you know, wonderful, wonderful jokes that wind up on the editing room floor. Um, and I think the Netflix situation is going to allow us to put a lot more of that into the show. So I'm excited about that. Um, yeah. In your career, I feel that, that you've written for some um, very smart, intelligent, um, but also sort of sensitive and tricky subject matters, which many politically correct groups here or there would be offended by. Um, has, is there something in your career that you remember that's given you the biggest reaction that's pissed people off the most? I will, I'll tell you this. Um, uh, a couple of uh, moments that don't uh, involve shows that or moments that actually got on the air, but in cases where I've seen those concerns uh, change what comes out of a writer's room. Um, there was a point I was working on the NBC show, The Office, and there was a discussion of, there was a character who was pregnant, and there was a discussion of whether or not we could show her having um, a sip from a glass of wine. Um, and it was a very, very big uh, and challenging discussion where there were people who felt that um, the American public would never forgive this character for having a sip of wine and other people who felt like, you know, uh, they either had been pregnant themselves or had, um, or had wives who had been pregnant and had doctors that said it's fine to have a sip every now and then. And that was a moment where I felt like the, the show decided we're not going to show this character doing that. Um, and it was because of a fear of blowback. But do you feel that the audiences have become more politically correct? Yeah, I do feel like there's more discussion and more political correctness and more sort of, uh, we call it identity politics here a lot. Um, but I'm not, I think it's partially about um, how we're talking amongst ourselves. Like, I think that the rise of social media and, you know, Twitter and, and Facebook are sort of making these, are sort of aiding in what occasionally feels to me like, unfounded outrage. Um, so uh, I'm not sure where we would be without those new forums. Um, but I, I, they seem to transmit anger and uh, very, very quickly and compound anger. Um, so I, I, I think they're, 
I think there's something connected between those two. And I'm, I'm not certain. Sometimes I feel like uh, I get frustrated as someone who's trying to be creative when uh, I see critiques be passed around on social media that make me feel like I could, you know, I, I generally feel like I'm a sensitive person and I see critiques of other shows or movies come up where I feel like, my God, how, how can you possibly make something in this world and not have people uh, decide that you're racist or sexist or whatever? Um, I think it can get in your head and make you sort of, uh, make you sort of question uh, your thoughts, which can be a good thing, but can also wind up being a little bit of censorship. I know you're writing um, Kimmy season two. Do you have something else coming up as well? Well, uh, yeah. So uh, what comes up next mostly uh, are two things. Um, one is a, a script uh, I'm, I've been working on on my own and that uh I need to get to a network that's purchased it, but my gosh, there's a lot of work to be done. TV series? Yes, yes. And that, you know, I should tell you, this doesn't mean that it gets on the air, but we're going to work on it together and see if we get it on the air. Um, And other than that, you know, I had a baby uh, a little more than three months ago, and I'm mostly attending to to him and having a lot of fun with him. Um, Congratulations. And um, just the last one, how do you think uh, Steven's going to do? In David's shoes. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I think he, you know, I think he's going to be fantastic. I'm, I'm excited because he, you know, he is so smart and can have such wonderful conversations with people that I, I think it's going to be really a fun and, and fascinating alternative to have on late night. Um, Has he asked you to come along? Um, you know, I'm doing my own thing and he's doing his, but we, we definitely chat about it and I think he's got some great ideas. Because I know he, he, he was incredibly upset when you left, it sounded like. <laughs> that he, he yeah, he's a, we're very close. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge, huge fan. I think it's going to be tremendous. I think that, that my 20 minutes are up and I'm so, so happy to have talked to you and thank you so much for taking this time, Allison, and good luck with everything. Christina, thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks for all the amazing feedback we got last week. It was really overwhelming. Please continue to get in touch through Facebook, through Twitter, through Instagram, and on the homepage, popcultureconfidential.com. And thanks to the amazing people that have worked with this. It's sound engineering and editing by Tom Hansen with additional sound engineering by Tumasiu. Producers Renia Wittestedt and music Carl Borg. The Colbert Report clip is courtesy of Comedy Central. And next time, if you like Game of Thrones or the Amazon series Bosch, you'll want to tune in. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. 
what they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Green.